Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge. What you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world ticket. Today, flying high. Partner Louise Clamker joins us to talk all things aviation, including the ACCC's case against Qantas, its rejection of Qantas's acquisition of Alliance, and the Senate inquiry on bilateral air services agreements, which I promise was a lot more interesting than it sounds. In circumstances where we had just seen this cost of living debate, we had talked about how high the profitability of Qantas was majorly driven by international services. Many international airlines had not yet returned to operations in Australia and the international flying capacity to and from Australia was still well below pre-COVID levels, but prices were multiples of pre-COVID levels and consumers are living poor international flying experience or extremely high prices and low availability. Why is it that the government would knock back an application to fly more planes to Australia? But first, Matt, what's been happening down on the ground? Well, here on Terra Firma, we've had a really interesting decision from the ACCC authorising the acquisition by Brookfield and Mid-Ocean of Origin Energy, one of the big three energy suppliers in Australia, in what's been described as a face-off between competition and the environment. So Brookfield and Mid-Ocean are both big investment managers too, who already have some interest in the energy sector over here. Yeah, Brookfield has a stake in the Victorian Electricity Network, and Mid-Ocean has some upstream LNG assets as well. And the ACCC was quite concerned that if the deal went through, Brookfield in particular might be able to discriminate against suppliers other than Origin in granting access to the network. So the ACCC was not satisfied that the deal would not substantially lessen competition? It was not, um, even with some undertakings to ring-fence the various parts of the merged business. Ah, undertakings. We'll talk more about this multi-purpose tool in an upcoming episode. We will. But the ACCC was satisfied that the deal would have a range of public benefits. And those were all about speeding up the adoption of renewable generation and storage and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, not just for Origin and its customers, but for Australia as a whole. And those were material public benefits. And together with the undertakings we mentioned, they outweighed the anti-competitive detriments. So Brookfield has quite a few investments in renewable power and the energy transition, and they've been kicking the tyres around here for a while. Yeah, they were part of last year's bid with Mike Cannon-Brooks for AGL, another one of the big three. And that didn't go ahead in the end. And there is still a question about whether Brookfield's offer for Origin is high enough this time around. Yeah, Origin's share price went up a fair bit after the ACCC had cleared the deal. It did. And Brookfield's track record and its capabilities were an important part of the authorisation. The ACCC says it'll be able to leverage Origin's customer base and speed the transition faster than Origin could by itself. So this seems like a big deal for the ACCC to find that purely environmental benefits outweighed some pretty significant anti-competitive detriments. It is. The ACCC in the past has tended to tie public benefits to economic benefits, like solving a market failure. And of course, there is a market failure around sustainability and emissions, and the applicants argued that. But the ACCC didn't think it was all that necessary to go into the economics. It just accepted that transitioning away from fossil fuels to renewables at a faster pace and at a larger scale would be a material benefit to the community. Up, up and away then. Do you have any more good news for the environment? I've got some great news for the environment and maybe for sovereign citizens as well. Okay. You know, for a long time in Australia and around the world, there have been arguments, especially by economists, that drivers should be charged directly for their use of public roads in a way that reflects the cost of providing that particular road and would take into account things like location, time of use and congestion. And that's instead of being charged indirectly through the fuel excise, which is a good proxy for how far you drive and how efficient your car is, 
but doesn't take into account those other things. Exactly. And the fuel excise is a federal excise, which does then flow back to the states, but not in a way that's particularly responsive to the specific conditions on the ground or on the road. And the Harper report recommended a move to road pricing, and it was bombarded with a lot of very similar submissions from individuals arguing that the very suggestion was unconstitutional. Yeah, Professor Harper said that those submissions had all been roneoed, which I can just about remember what that was. And they all said things like, the public roads are in fee simple, and we the people paid for them, and we can't be charged again to use them. I express my will that our roads remain free from tolls. Plus, Section 92 of the Constitution dictates that trade, commerce and intercourse among the states should be absolutely free. Well, that doesn't sound entirely right. No, but maybe it's not as far off as we all thought, because the High Court has just struck down Victoria's controversial law that charges electric vehicle drivers for every kilometre they travel. And this is because EV drivers don't pay any fuel excise, but the state governments still want the money to pay for roads and stuff. But it kind of goes against the idea that we should encourage people to reduce emissions. It kind of does, yeah. The EV charge is less than the fuel excise and EV owners get a discount on their rego, but it will still take away some of that incentive, you'd have to think. Except now the High Court's got involved. So did it agree that the roads were in fee simple and charging for them is treason, punishable by imprisonment by any chance? Not exactly, but it did find that the EV charge was a tax on goods and so was an excise under Section 90 of the Constitution. And those can only be imposed by the Commonwealth and not by the states. Ah, that's why the fuel excise is a Commonwealth excise. You pay it every time you buy petrol. But this is a tax on using your car, not buying your car. So is that still a tax on goods? Well, not until now. The High Court decided in 1974 that a tax on consumption of goods wasn't an excise. But the majority in this case has reopened and overruled that old case on the basis that the excise would affect demand for electric vehicles and those are goods. So would that apply to the similar taxes that are planned for New South Wales and WA? Yeah, and those are very similar to the Victorian charge. South Australia recently ditched its planned road user charge after the change in government, and the other states and territories haven't announced any yet. But it looks like this will have to be a Commonwealth initiative if it's going to be anything at all. So Professor Harper might get his way despite the will of the people. And this might have implications for other taxes or levies imposed by the states on the consumption of goods, right? Yeah, the states are worried about a lot of their revenues, from car registrations to pokey taxes. But the reasoning in the EV tax case might not necessarily apply to all those other taxes. So we may have to wait and see which of those get litigated. And in the meantime, maybe it's a good time to buy an electric car in Victoria. But do you happen to have any news items, Matt, that combine more than one of the ongoing concerns of this podcast? I do have a couple of items that cover artificial intelligence, the Screen Actors Guild, Awkward legislative acronyms, rappers, and lawyers. Well, go on then. So a bipartisan group of US senators have introduced a bill to protect actors and singers from having their voices and likenesses digitally replicated and used without their permission. This is the Nurture Originals, Foster Art, and Keep Entertainment Safe Act of 2023. Oh, OMG. It's the No Fakes Act. Unfortunately, it is. This is a key concern of the ongoing Screen Actors Strike. And the online music services are already being hit with AI-generated songs based on the music and the vocals of artists like Drake and The Weeknd, as in this track by TikTok user Ghostwriter977. That does sound exactly like, what's it called, Week in the Drake End? So will the No Fakes Act ban those digital replicants? It will. There are some concerns that it won't actually go much further than existing protections for likeness and publicity, and it also won't apply to parodies or to the reporting of news, which is good news for us. Oh, 
Are we parody or news? I don't want to choose. We can be both. <laughs> and in other news that sounds like parody, for Casserole Praz Michel, the rapper from the Fugees, is appealing his recent conviction for conspiracy and foreign influence because he says his lawyer used a generative AI program to write his closing address. And it made a lot of mistakes, including quoting a song lyric, which it said was by the Fugees, but was actually by Puff Daddy, also called P. Diddy or Diddy or Puffy or Sean Coombs. Can you run that by me again? I honestly don't think I can. The company behind the AI had used the original case to promote its product, saying it can make lawyers 10 times more effective by ingesting court transcripts, generating first draft language for closing arguments, and even predicting what opposing counsel will say in court. So can it predict when it'll be used as grounds for a new trial? That would involve a bit more self-awareness than these things have at this stage, I think. That might be the singularity. It might. And there are some areas in law where AI really can be a game changer, like in document production and working through tons of materials, but it doesn't seem like we can trust it with legal reasoning just yet. Well, at least we'll have jobs fact-checking the AIs, I suppose. Everything from who's saying, every single day, every time I pray, I will be missing you, to how many fingers do most people have on each hand? That's right. And Moya, I know you travel a lot for football commitments and other things, and you may have noticed that long-haul flights have become a lot more pleasant thanks to artificial intelligence. Um, I hadn't noticed, but should I pay more attention? Well, that's the promise of the AI companies anyway, who say that airlines can use AI to plot better flight paths and avoid turbulence and optimise their operations. Oh, so was it AI that decided they could sell tickets for flights that had already been cancelled? Allegedly? Allegedly. That sounds like something you might have asked partner Louise Klemke when you sat down to talk about everything that's been happening in the aviation industry. Actually, I didn't, but we did have a great chat about the pile-on of reviews and a lot of other turbulence in the airline industry. Let's take a listen. It's my very great pleasure to welcome Louise Klamka to the pod. Louise is a partner working on all things competition and with a particular focus on airlines. Welcome, Louise. Thanks very much, Moya. It's great to be here, as always. Well, so much has happened on airlines. It's in the news constantly. I think we need a little catch up. So can you tell us what's been happening in airlines? Well, I never thought that I would get sick of hearing about airline competition on the news, but it (laughs) seemed every time I turned on the business or 7.30, that's what everyone was talking about. And finally, the rest of the world understands what I have understood for some time. Airline competition is the most fascinating area out there. We're all airline nerds now. You don't have to convince me. (laughs) But we've been through COVID where really the travel industry was uh, brought to a halt for a while. There was a huge amount of government support stepping in, as it did for many industries. And now the pendulum's kind of swung back the other way, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the last year, 18 months, we have seen such high demand for everybody wanting to travel in a world in which airlines were still recovering from the effect of COVID and had lost a lot of staff and were struggling to meet that demand. International airlines hadn't all returned to Australia. And so people were desperately wanting to travel, but looking at higher prices because demand was outstripping supply and not very happy about any failings in in service levels. And this is a bit of a perfect storm for the issues of competition and consumer protection to become right front and centre for both consumers, regulators and politicians. And then the odd profit announcement and a a bit of political theatre thrown in. 
there's been much political theatre. Indeed. Um, So what has been happening on the regulatory and review front? Because there seems to be any number of reviews and inquiries. Just, Just run us through what's happening. Yeah. So in February, the federal government announced that it was going to launch an aviation white paper process, which is to report next year. And that's looking at the whole industry and sustainability, competition, consumer and support for the economy generally through the aviation industry. So the green paper on that was released in September with currently open for submissions due at the end of November. So that's all very much going on. And that's the department who's running that? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But then at the same time, the Treasury is looking into competition laws generally. There's a two-year competition policy review with the task force headed up by Rod Sims. And there was a little bit of debate about whether aviation was in or not. And I think it depended on on what was the biggest political hot potato of a particular week, whether it was in. But in the end, we landed on that is covering aviation competition as well. So how those two processes are going to sit alongside each other when both of them are going to look at some of the same issues will be interesting to watch. In the meantime, the ACCC has had a remit to monitor domestic airline activity for the last two years, and they've put out periodic reports that look at pricing and and various issues in relation to competition and consumer access in that industry. And in June, they put out their final report, which gained a lot of public attention because it came out quite strongly talking about the impact of competition on consumer welfare in the market and raising questions about whether more needed to be done to encourage entry and expansion of players beyond Qantas and Virgin. Clearly, many of these things are actually Qantas issues, which is probably borne out by the proceedings that the ACCC has subsequently taken in relation to Qantas, but that's a story we'll come to in a second. So, ACCC puts out quite a strong report questioning the level of competition in the market. It asks for a remit to continue to monitor, and the government says no. Qantas was certainly in favour of no further monitoring, but all the other airlines seemed to either be in favour or agnostic. So that became a question as to why the ACCC was not permitted to continue this monitoring function. That decision has now been reversed. In October, it was announced that they would continue to monitor and they were given the remit to, to start that process again. There was a lot going on around that to lead to that decision, wasn't there? There was a cost of living inquiry in the Senate and there were some ACCC proceedings brought. Yes. Yes, there was a bit of a perfect storm for Qantas over a few weeks there. They had the fabulous news to announce to their shareholders about their record profits. Unfortunately for a public who had experienced some of the teething problems of post-COVID travel, or had flight credits that they hadn't been able to redeem or baggage lost or cancelled flights, they didn't like the sound of this record profit very much. And there was a lot of focus on that. With perfect timing in this furor, the ACCC announced that it had been investigating Qantas's flight cancellation practices and that it was bringing proceedings against Qantas under the Australian consumer law for allegedly advertising and selling flights it had already cancelled. And we're talking quite a lot of flights, up to 16,000 tickets the ACCC alleges were sold under those circumstances. So that's 
pretty significant consumer law conduct. And it'll be very interesting to see how that all plays out when it hits the courts. Gina Cascotlieb did say when she announced the proceedings that they were looking for record penalties, I think at the order of $250 million penalties. Wow. At the same time, there was a cost of living inquiry going on in the Senate, which led to the grilling of of certain Qantas staff and management. There was a high court case on offshoring of staff. And all of this just played into the furor as well, didn't it? Absolutely. And I think it hit peak furor when it was revealed that international airline Qatar Airways had applied for further flying rights to Australia. And these had been knocked back by the government in the bilateral discussions between Australia and Qatar and speculation that perhaps Qantas had been influential in that decision. And then we had a select committee in the Senate on Commonwealth bilateral air services. That's right. So, you know, there was quite a lot of media attention about this decision and it was felt that this was something that needed to be looked more closely at. You know, obviously opposition's like to it's political theatre. It's yes. political theatre. <laughs> exactly. Political theatre, definitely. But a real question to be asked in circumstances where we had just seen this cost of living debate, we had talked about how high the profitability of Qantas was majorly driven by international services. Many international airlines had not yet returned to operations in Australia. And the international flying capacity to and from Australia was still well below pre-COVID levels, but prices were, you know, multiples of pre-COVID levels. So in a world in which there are all of these factors occurring at a structural level and consumers are living poor international flying experience or extremely high prices and low availability, why is it that the government would knock back an application to fly more planes to Australia? So in amongst all this turbulence, what did the select committee say? Well, they were not pleased, Moya, at all. The first thing they recommended, unsurprisingly, was that the government immediately review its decision not to increase capacity under the Australia-Qatar Bilateral Air Services Agreement. Then they also made quite a few recommendations about how those decisions should be made in the future in terms of the consultation with different stakeholders because one of the things that did come out of this inquiry process was that the consultation happened on a very, very limited basis quite frequently after the decision had already been taken. So there there were some procedural problems. They then went on from that to recommend that the government review reform options to strengthen competition in the domestic aviation industry. So we were supposed to be looking at bilateral air services rights for international flying, but then they're making recommendations that the government review competition in the domestic sphere, which of course, as we know from what we've just are talked we about- we having two other reviews we already? Are, we are. We're okay. already looking at that in the white and green papers and in the competition task force. But I think they just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they also thought that that should occur. Were they suggesting that there be a third parallel review or were they just cheering along with the first two? I, I think just cheering along. Okay. Okay. What, what else did they say? Was there something to appease the lost bags people or the refund uh, flight credit movement? Yes, they certainly think that there needs to be a solution for the consumer difficulties that have arisen in the industry lately. And 
more timely resolution of complaints. What they ask for is nothing new. It's already been consulted on in the green paper, but they have suggested that some kind of compensation scheme like they have in Europe could be introduced here or alternatively a independent ombudsman. But I think all of this is going to be addressed through that green paper, white paper process. And I think all of the airlines will weigh into what is workable as well as other stakeholders. You know, it's interesting because in Europe, they do have this system where there are set compensation payments given for passengers in circumstances where there's been a delay or a cancellation in any transport, trains as well. How much you get is based on how far you're traveling. And so there's just like a matrix distance correlating with your compensation amount. And it has no reference to how much you paid for the ticket, whether you were inconvenienced because you actually then missed your connecting cruise or anything like that. It is just, we are 30 minutes late, therefore you get this sum of money because you were traveling this number of kilometers. Whereas in Australia, we actually have very detailed consumer laws and the consumer guarantees apply to air travel. And under those, If there is a failure to provide a service in a timely manner, you may be entitled to compensation that equates to the reasonably foreseeable loss from that failure to provide those services. So it's a lot more tailored to actually what the consumer had to outlay from their pocket, whether there were flow-on effects and whether it then obviously was the airline's fault. So I think the idea behind this just blanket compensation scheme is that it will make airlines not cancel flights or perform better. But the reality is these services, a lot of things are complicated and not in control. So even though, you know, if it's weather or terrorism or strike or anything like that, the airlines are not bound to compensate in this way. There are so many moving parts where it, it does become difficult to, to keep the planes in the air and flying on time all the time. So there are so many contributory factors that it is quite difficult to apportion, you know, causation for some of these disruptions. But there's clearly a level of public impatience with the mechanism for gaining some measure of redress, isn't there, which is what they seem to be aiming at. Definitely there is a lot of discontent about the ability to get complaints resolved and the furor around refunds and the ability to use travel credits and, you know, Qantas having to reverse its decision on expiry of those is at the heart of that. I'm sure everybody has spent time on hold trying to get a refund or a rescheduled flight. And so there definitely is a place for a cleaner, more accountable process for accessing consumer rights. So remind me what they were solving for in this Senate Select Committee? That's a very good question, Well, because it did sort of go on a few different tangents. But the original issue that was raised was the Qatar government applied for additional flying rights to Australia. So in order to operate services to or from Australia or any other country for that matter, The governments of the two countries involved need to reach a bilateral agreement. So there are treaties between nations or lesser agreements 
that govern those kind of rights and the countries decide on a diplomatic basis to grant these flying rights. They're usually reciprocal but not always. So earlier in the year, Qatar applied for further flying rights. Currently, they have the right to operate 28 services to Australia per week and they are fully utilised. Qatar Airways wanted to bring more services into the country and had the planes ready to do it, and the government declined to offer any more flying rights. And that was the decision that was put under scrutiny in this? Yes. And I suppose the background to that and what raised the questions about whether that decision was proper was firstly the concern that there was reduced capacity for flying to and from Australia, which was causing prices to be very, very high. And secondly, that there are other bilateral agreements that have much, much higher numbers of flying rights in them that are not fully utilised. So, for example, the United Arab Emirates Agreement with Australia has, you know, well over 100 slots allocated for flying to and from Australia each week, and that's about half utilised. And there was speculation that there may have been some influencing behind the scenes that led to the decision. So the select committee drilled into the possible reasons behind the decision and suggested that the decision needed to be made again based on a consideration of the direct stakeholders, the impact on economy, the impact on transport and on consumers, rather than any other factors. Interesting. And meantime, Qantas had a change of CEO. It did. And it was also pursuing an acquisition of Alliance and then recently has announced a U-turn of that decision. So Alliance is a charter operator. They're the second largest charter operator in Australia after Qantas. And they are concentrated on providing services to businesses that fly in and fly out their workforces, so some of the biggest companies in Australia, who are also the biggest users of air services in Australia. So they are a direct competitor of Qantas, as well as Virgin and a large number of smaller charter providers. Qantas actually bought a 19.9% stake in Alliance back in 2019 without going to the HBC for permission, and then faced a two-year post-completion review of that. The HCC last year announced that it was closing that review and about two weeks later, Qantas announced that it was now going to buy the remaining 80.1% of Alliance. And this time it went to the HCC and unsurprisingly, the HCC raised some significant concerns and ultimately announced that it was going to oppose the transaction in April of this year. So why did Qantas decide not to pursue it? Well, the HCC told them that they couldn't. Now, it was open to Alliance to take the matter to the federal court and they could have sought a declaration that it did not contravene Section 50 as a merger that had the effect of substantially lessening competition. And it was thought that that's what they would do because in the publicly available agreement with Alliance, it said that they would take every step possible to get HCC approval, including through a federal court proceedings. So everyone in the industry has been sort of waiting for them to take those steps since the no decision. But as time progressed, it looked increasingly less likely. And recently they announced that they weren't going to proceed with the acquisition anymore. 
Well, I guess that's one less thing on the new CEO's desk as well now. Yeah, absolutely. And on the ACCC's desk as well. Indeed, because there are so many overlapping reviews going on. I mean, do we need a review into the overlap of reviews in the airline sector? Look, I think that's an excellent idea, Moya. (laughs) (laughs) I think the next year will bring a lot of continued scrutiny on the industry as we see how people are responding to the issues that are raised in the green paper and the ACCC's continuing monitoring. It'll be very interesting to see whether they take up the challenge put down by the Senate and find competition cases to bring in relation to the sector. And of course, you know, there's a whole other side to this industry. People are very fixated on airlines at the moment, but nobody is thinking about airports. Should I be thinking about airports? You absolutely should be. What should I be thinking about airports? Because each of those airports is an actual monopoly. And some of them certainly have been exhibiting monopoly pricing. So when you look at how do new entrants get access to airports, everyone's talking about slots. But nobody's asking the question about the cost of landing an aircraft there and how that fits in with a low cost model or a budget carrier proposition. So are they price regulated? Because a lot of monopolies are. No, these monopolies are not price regulated. They've been proposals to have a negotiate arbitrate model in place so that when airlines reach an impasse in negotiating with airports, there is somewhere to go in order to resolve those disputes. At present, it's very much a take it or leave it kind of model. Previously, part 3A was used in an airport context, but all of the decisions that have read down the application of part 3A and the amendments to it really mean it's not a viable tool in this space anymore at all. So that's another sort of place to look if people are wanting to promote competition in domestic aviation. So might that be looked at in the aviation review for the white paper? Yes, airport planning and management are on the agenda for the white paper along with other things like noise regulation, environmental impacts, the move to net zero. Really, it's a very broad inquiry that looks at the entirety of the industry and future-proofing it. Interesting times ahead. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Louise. It's been a pleasure to talk airlines with you. We're always in for industry nerds on the podcast, so (laughs) very happy to have you join us. A pleasure, and I am happy to be an industry nerd for the aviation. (laughs) Head in the clouds. Is that what they say about you? Both feet firmly on the ground at the same time, though, Moya. What a great interview. Of course, everyone remembers that scene in Rain Man back in 1988 when Dustin Hoffman wouldn't fly anything but Qantas because of its safety record. All, right, Terrible winds. all airlines, all, all airlines have crashed at one time or another. That doesn't mean that they are not safe. Qantas. Qantas? Qantas never crashed. Qantas? Never crashed. Well, that's, I mean, that's going to do me a lot of good, Ray. Yeah. I heard Quantus that a lot of other airlines cut LAX. that scene when they showed the movie in flight. But of course, Qantas kept it in there. Yeah, I heard that too. Uh, it's true that Qantas has never had a fatal accident in the jet era, although it did lose some propeller planes, especially during the Second World War. It is still ranked as the world's safest international airline, even though it's having a rough time at the moment. Indeed. But before we go, Matt, what do you have in your crystal ball? Well, ACCC Chair Gina Cascotlieb recently spoke at the International Competition Network Conference in Barcelona, where Gaudi's Basilica of the Sagrada Familia is almost finished after more than 140 years of construction. 
They've probably heard Gina was coming and made a sprint for the finish. That famous church was delayed by the Spanish Civil War when anarchists broke into Gaudi's studio and destroyed his models and burned his blueprints. Everyone's a critic, right? Hmm. And another long-term project is the ATCC's effort to achieve the kind of penalties it says are needed to deter large companies from breaking the law. Our legislature has recently increased penalties to $50 million per contravention. There can be multiple contraventions in repeated conduct or three times the harm or 30% of the turnover. We do not achieve anywhere near those levels in the penalties that are put uh, are determined by our courts. We, don't, we consider that we are not currently achieving penalties at a level which creates sufficient incentive for deterrence. Those new penalties will only apply to conduct that took place after the penalties were introduced last November, and that conduct will take a while to get before the courts. That's true, and even when the courts do start to apply the new maximum penalties, that won't necessarily change the actual penalties that are imposed. Civil cases, of course, are always limited by the principle of deterrence, and the courts won't want to impose penalties that are so severe that they're oppressive. And the ACCC clearly doesn't think the courts have got the balance right so far. It's interesting because our court applies a principle of that the penalty strikes a reasonable balance between deterrence and oppressive severity, as in forces, we recognise the due process element relating to oppressive severity. We just think that the courts need to take very clear attention of the capacity, size and extent of harm, particularly where we have widespread systemic harm, and need, therefore, to weigh on the side of deterrence in that balance between oppressive severity and deterrence. Because if we do not achieve penalties at these levels, the public will not have confidence in ex post enforcement, and the public will look to other... and the political sphere will look to other means, including more ex ante framework. So the ACCC has already said that they need ex-ante regulation to deal with digital platforms, but does this suggest it might be looking at other areas as well? Yeah, maybe. I mean, they've often expressed frustration when a court decision doesn't go their way or the penalty is lower than the one they'd asked for, but they've usually kind of accepted that their role is to investigate and bring the best case they can for the court to decide. It does seem now like that's shifting a bit and they're looking at quite a fundamental change in what they do. Well, Chair Cascot Leap has certainly thrown down the gauntlet to the courts like Don Quixote might have done to some Spanish duke. Are you saying she's tilting at windmills? Uh, she would never tilt. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including special counsel Richard Lestrange on undertakings. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Surely you can't be serious. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs>